Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 20. What advantage then hath a Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For how, then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abandoned through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. We have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are become together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of apse is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things serve the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Title of this message this morning, The Righteousness of God Vindicated. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privileges ours to be assembled together. Thank you, Father, for uh, your word that we can open and study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So I pray, Father, that you help me to write divide thy truth this morning. And I pray, Father, that we would submit to your precious word, knowing that it is truth and it is eternal truth. It does not change. And that by it we shall be judged one day. And are being judged day by day. We should judge our own life by the word of God that will not be judged and condemned with the world. So, Lord, I pray that you just help us, encourage us, challenge us, Bring conviction where conviction is needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've been looking at you know, the choices and the, the righteousness of God that's been demonstrated uh, to the world through, through creation. Uh, we call this natural revelation. And all the world is, is guilty. And, of course, uh, last week we talked about the, the Jew and circumcision and and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's not circumcision which is outward, it's inward. It's of the heart. It's the heart of the matter. And so 
as we think about that, if circumcision is no avail, what advantage then is it to be a Jew? That's the next question. You might say today, if we're all born in sin, what advantage is it to be brought up in an independent Baptist church that teaches the truth? We still all have to repent, which is true. But what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? And my first point is, out of three, the, the privilege of God. It is a privilege. He says, what advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. <clears throat> so the word advantage, just to define a few terms here. The word advantage means as a substantive, a preeminence, or a superiority. So the Jews then had a superiority over the Gentiles. That's what Paul said. Is there an advantage, a preeminence, or a superiority to being a Jew? Well, he says... Much every way, chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. The word committed means to be entrusted with a thing. And the oracles of God refers to the words or the utterances of God. So, to the Jews was committed or entrusted the words of God. In, in Acts chapter 7 verse 38 during Stephen's testimony, Stephen said this, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel that spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. So the Jews were God's chosen, were chosen by God that through them would come the Old Testament scriptures and also through them came the Messiah. You know, they had the written revelation of God given to them and entrusted to their care. Now, this is a great privilege. This is a great privilege. It also comes with responsibility. Not only had they been given the privilege of being entrusted with it, they had a responsibility of it being trusted to their keeping, but also in its proclamation. Think about it. They had the revelation of God. You know, yes, God reveals himself in nature as a creator, but he doesn't reveal himself as the omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, immutable, never-changing. Those things we understand by reading his word. We learn that he is the I am by reading his word. Uh, <clears throat> we learn about his mercy and his grace, again, by reading his word. And so this was a great privilege that the Jews had and trusted to their care. But they were also to proclaim it to a lost world. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12, it says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before they me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. 
I, even I am the Lord. Beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and I have saved and have showed where there is no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. You see, Israel was a testimony to the power and glory of God to Egypt. Think about it. To Egypt and the nations around them. All the nations that, that, that they conquered when they come in the land, they were afraid of Israel. Because God manifested himself through his people. And they were to be, they were to be witnesses. And, and think about the opportunities that Pharaoh had. Moses did all those miracles before them, proving that the God of Israel is the real God. And yet, what Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? I should obey him. I mean, when the Lord's bringing judgments in all your idols, don't you think it's time to wake up and say, Ah, you know what? Hmm. Maybe he is the real God. All those things were, were testimonies to Egypt. In fact, you remember what the Lord told Moses? He said, See, I have made thee a God unto Pharaoh. Now the word God there in that sense is a small g. Not the God. But I, if Abraham's going to look to you like you're a god. And he said, I have made thee. In other words, you see, God did that so Pharaoh would listen to Can you imagine going into Pharaoh to, to a dictator and, and doing all these plagues and that dictator don't cut your head off? I mean, why wouldn't he? Do you think if you'd have done something like that or tried to do something like that with Fidel Castro or, or Putin, or you, what would they do to you? You'd throw you in jail. But Moses did it, miracle after miracle, judgment after judgment after judgment. And Pharaoh still let him go free. You see, they, the Jews had great privilege, great advantage. And so do we. So do we. We as a church have great advantage. I've drawn down three things here. You know, it's a privilege to be a part of a church where the word of God is expounded. That means basically explained in Sunday school, in the morning service, in the evening service. We don't tell you just things about the word of God. We tell you what the word of God says. And how it applies to life. Yeah, you could go to Joe Olstein and get yourself a nice motivational message. But he wouldn't explain to you what the Bible says and how it applies to life. He, he would tell you how to make God your good luck charm. Basically. You know, 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar, or words, that holds up, and the ground, that's the anchor of the truth, it holds it up and it keeps, and it's to keep it. 
It's a privilege to be a part of the church, of a church where the word of God is explained. It's a privilege to have parents not only bring you to church, but strive to please the Lord themselves and teach you the word of God. Understand something, young people. You're in the minority. Most people, the vast majority of people, of young people in the world, don't have those privileges. I didn't. I mean, my parents taught me some things. My parents never talked to me about salvation. You know, it's a privilege to be chosen as his witnesses. You know, that's a privilege we have. You know, we've been given the pure word of God, and we are... The God the world sees. We're the God the world sees. In other words, they, they measure us, or they measure our God by us. We're his ambassadors. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, Ye are the light of the world. And that word light there has the idea of reflection. Or to, or to re, in other words, he is the light of the he is the light of the world, but we are lights, we're small lights, no we are to reflect him. Like a mirror reflects. Like a reflector. Romans twelve two says, Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, the world needs to see and desires to see God's will proved in people's lives. In our lives. Second Corinthians 3 3, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, said, For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. In other words, ye are the you are a living epistle. An epistle is a letter. In other words, you're the written message. Yeah, we have a great privilege. You know, I look at some of our young people. And many of you have the potential of going much farther than I. Because of the advantage you have. So, think, how much greater was Solomon than David because of the preparation Solomon had that David didn't have? You see, wisdom is, if you, wisdom is that each generation will go further than the previous one. You learn from your parents, you learn from those that also around you and, and so you gain more knowledge and more understanding than they had. And, and for a Jew, you know, think of it. When a Jew gets saved, if he's an Orthodox Jew and he has a, has a, a handle or an understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures, 
boy, all of a sudden the whole Bible is opened up to him, and he has insights that most people have no understanding about. And that was the Apostle Paul. When he realized that Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of all those Old Testament scriptures, you know, that's why I believe he wrote the book of Hebrews. Because he understood what all those sacrifices meant. So with a privilege, we have great privilege. But I want you to notice, secondly, the person of God. In verses 3 through 8, it says, What if, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? So, you know, there were Jews that didn't believe. So does that make the faith of God or the faithfulness of God or the, uh, uh, or, you know, or the character of God, does that make his character of none effect? Paul said, God forbid. God forbid. That, that phrase is used two times in this passage in verse 4 and also in verse 6. And it means, uh, really, one commentary says it means this, away with such a thought. It cannot happen. That's the idea. It cannot happen. God will keep his word. God forbid. So what if some did not believe? We see here for two th- several things. First of all, the faithfulness of God. What if? You know, we often ask, what if, what if, what if? I hate those what ifs. What does some not believe? It means to be, you know, some, in other words, to not believe means to betray a trust, to be unfaithful. So there are some that are, that are unfaithful with the trust that God has given to them. You know, the, to the Jews had been committed to the oracles of God, and some were unfaithful. They didn't keep it. They didn't proclaim it. Does that make the faith of God, and the word faith here, referring to God, means fidelity or the faithfulness or the character of one who can be relied upon. Does that make his, his faithfulness of none effect or to render it uh, uh, or to make it not efficient or deprive it of force or influence or bring it to naught? And the answer is, Paul said, God forbid. The answer is no. It doesn't change the faithfulness of God. You know, we can always count on the fact that God will keep his word. In Hebrews 6.18, it says that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. It was impossible for God to lie. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2 it says in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You see if God says it in his world he's going to keep it. He's going to do what he said. We need to trust him. 2 Timothy 2.13 says if we believe not yet he abideth faithful he cannot deny himself. You see, for God to not keep his word, he'd have to deny himself. And God can't do that. Because God can't 
asked a question one day in a group of in a teen class in Maine. Is there anything God can't do? I wasn't thinking about what I just spoke about. Yeah, and one girl raised her hand. She said, "Yeah, God can't sin." Yeah, that, that is that is. But he will he will keep his word. He can't he can't sin. There's nothing God can't do. But he won't contradict himself. He won't contradict himself. He cannot deny himself. And Paul said this in verse 4, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And that is a quotation from Psalm 51 in verse 4, where David said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. In other words, God... You're just. I've, it's, I have sinned. And I am deserving of the consequences of my sin. You're just. You know, you got child dying. You see, there were some grave consequences to David's sin, but David said, you're just. Spurgeon said this, quote, it's a strange, strong expression, but it is none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true, and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than the universal opinion of men. Unquote. See, God is faithful. So we see the faithfulness of God. The second thing we see here, the righteousness of God, vindicated nurses 5 through 8. He says this, but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for how then or for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more bounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now this, 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 these few verses can be a little bit confusing. But let's define a few things here. First of all, the word command means to place together or to set in the same place. In other words, the idea of bringing together or banding together. And notice it says, if our unrighteousness bring together the righteousness of God, or commend, bring together the righteousness of God. The question then is asked, is God unrighteous? Who taketh vengeance. So if, if my unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness, is it right for God to judge me for my sin? So some are trying to put together or band together sin and the righteousness of God. Now, 
that since God can bring glory out of sin, let's sin more. You know what? God can bring glory out of sin. And because God can bring glory out of sin, some say, well, let's sin more. And Paul says, again, God forbid. Away with such a thought. One commentator said this, Paul was familiar with a line of thinking that says, quote, God is in control of everything, even my evil, will ultimately demonstrate his righteousness. Therefore, God is unjust if he inflicts his wrath on me because I'm just a pawn in his hand, unquote. And then he goes on and says this, quote, in theory, the most drastic example of someone who might ask this question is Judas. Can you hear Judas make this case? Lord, I know that I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. In fact, if I hadn't done what I did, betrayed Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross of all. What I did even fulfilled the scriptures. How can he judge me for that? The answer to Judas might go like this. Yes, God used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness. There was no good or pure motive in your heart at all. It is no credit to you that God brought good out of evil. You stand guilty before God. Now, Calvinists would say, Judas was chosen by divine decree to betray Jesus not sure what version of the Bible or what theological book they get that out of, but it doesn't get it out of the Bible. In fact, look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Speaking about Judas, in Acts chapter 1, verse 25, says that he might take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. I think it's kind of clear there that Judas went to his own place, or the place of his own choosing. And of course, James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, James 1, verse 13, says, let no man when he is tempted, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't err. God is not the author, nor did he decree sin in the world. Sin is the result of man's own lusts. See, the truth is, 
Judas was chosen by Jesus to be a disciple. And Judas chose to be a traitor. Was Judas trying to fulfill the word of God? No. Did he? Yeah. But was he trying? No. Was Judas following, or should I say it this way, was he in agreement with Jesus Christ? The answer again is no. He just went along with it. Judas was following the will of Judas, and I'm sure he thought that there would always be a way out. You know, the Calvinists, I mean, as the Calvinists say, God hardened in Pharaoh's heart, but not before Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You know, there is not and never has been anyone living in sin trying to feel God's word or trying to bring glory to God. And yet that's what they're saying here. As we be slanderously reported of and say, uh, some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. I mean, after all, if God can bring good out of our sin, let's sin more. That was what they were, some were saying. Paul said, God forbid. God forbid. There may be good come out of it. God may turn something around for good, but he's going to judge you still for your sin. Nobody goes into sin thinking, I'm fulfilling scripture. Or I'm doing the will of God. So that God gets more glory. No one sins with that purpose in mind. That's like saying, I'll drink myself drunk to prove that God has the power to take me home safely tonight. We would say that's D-U-M dumb. That's sinning against God and tempting him. See, we choose to sin because we desire to please self and resist God or we don't trust him. You know, unbelief is sin. There was a lot of suffering as a result of David and Bathsheba's sin. It caused many to blaspheme. It, it gave occasion to others to sin. But you know what? Out of that came Solomon the greatest king Israel ever had. Why? Because David and Bathsheba repented. They confessed. Remember what Brother Stephen said, what's confess mean? Same word. They agreed with God. You see, nothing good comes from sin but sometimes in spite of our sin or from repentance from sin. You know, Bathsheba warned Solomon about two things. Proverbs chapter 31. Strong drink and strange women. Proverbs 31, the words of King Lamech, the prophecy that his mother taught him, what my son and what the son of my womb, what the son of my vows, give not thy strength unto women, 
nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lamuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any afflicted. Then verse 10 she said, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Solomon, you need to find you a virtuous woman. Stay away from a strange woman. You know, the word of God warns us. You know, sin's like a strange woman that leads us right to the gates of hell. Nothing good comes from sin. And God's not the author of sin. And God doesn't bring nothing. Sin, God doesn't, doesn't get glory in sin. His righteous judgment will be seen when God judges sin. Then I want you to notice thirdly, the perverseness of man. Notice verses 9 through 20. What then? What then? Are we better than they? Uh, he's speaking here, particularly the Jew, comparing the Jew with the Gentile. And the answer again is no and no wise, for we have before proof, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You know, this is, this is a, this is, like Warren, Warren Wearsby calls this passage, quote, an x-ray study of the lost sinner from head to foot, unquote. He goes from the head all the way to the feet. Verse 15 says their feet are swift to shed blood. They are, verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become one prophet. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There's not a just man on the earth that sinneth not, the Bible says. James Fawcett Brown said this, quote, that the Jew is shut up under like condemnation with the Gentile is proved by his own scripture. And what Paul is doing here is quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, all from the Psalms. That man is a guilty sinner before a holy and righteous God. And our sin is perverse against God. Our way is perverse. The throat is an open sepulcher. What proceeds out of their heart and finds vent in speech and action through the throat is like a pestential breath of an open grave. Tongues they've used deceit. The tongue which is man's glory is prostituted for the purposes of deception. The poison of apps is under their lips. Those, those lips which should drop as honeycomb and feed many Give, and give thanks under his name, are employed to secrete and to dart deadly poison. Whose mouth is full of cursing, that mouth which should be most sweet, being set on fire of hell, James 3, 6 says, is filled with burning wrath against those whom it should only bless. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
Those feet which should run in the way of God's commandments are employed to conduct men to deeds of darkest crime. You know, this reads like a morning newspaper. No, we don't have newspapers anymore. Like your, like your internet news. And he sums it up in verse 18. It says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Every sin and rebellion against God happens because we don't have a proper respect and awe for who God is. We don't fear him. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of the book. Not Song of Solomon, but what's the other book there? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says, because, of, because sentence against man is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. There's only the fear of God. One commentator said, quote, it is, again, referring to the law of God, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Now, this is verse 19. Now, we know that what things several the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the law of God proves to us that we're all under sin. We're all born that way. We're all guilty of sin. And we're all guilty and in trouble with God. The law shows us how crooked I am and how perverse my way is before God. And some might say, well, you know, I'm not so bad. James 2.10 says, For whoso shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. See, God is holy and righteous. He cannot even look on a sin. So if I commit one, it's still separation or death. And who can say, who can honestly say, I've only, I've only, disobeyed one. You know, one, one person said when I was giving them the law they had the right response. She said we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're guilty. Yeah, the law says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Have you always put God first in every, every minute, every hour of your life? If anyone's honest, they'd have to say, no. Even if you grew up in a church like this and got saved in an early age, you'd still have to say, no. Have you always honored your father and mother? And the answer again, we'd have to say, no. See, all of us, our ways are perverse before a holy and righteous God. And the law of God, God's standard of righteousness condemns us. 
we are guilty. James Fawcett Brown, again in his commentary, said this, quote, How broad and deep does the apostle in this section lay the foundations of his great doctrine of justification by free grace in the disorder of man's whole nature, the consequent universality of human guilt, the condemnation by reason of the breach of divine law, of the whole world and the impossibility of justification before God by obedience to that violated law. Only when these humiliating conclusions are accepted and felt are we in a condition to appreciate and embrace the gospel, the grace of the gospel next to be opened up, unquote. You see, only when we accept and agree with God's righteous condemnation and are willing to cry out to God for help, are we prepared to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, that's what repentance is. See, we have to come to the conclusion at some point in our life that we are guilty before God of our own choices. And we are deserving of his judgment. And when we come to that place and are willing to submit and surrender to the Lord, God, in his mercy, offers to us eternal life and to pay for our sins through the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Abel, God said, you'd bring the lamb and the fat thereof, which pictures Jesus Christ. And Abel said, yes, I'm a sinner. I need someone to pay for my sin. And he brought the lamb and the fat thereof. Cain said, ah, I'm not so bad. Nobody has to die in my place. I don't think I'm that bad. He brought the fruit of his own hands. His works. He wasn't willing to admit I'm guilty. I'm deserving. You know, the sad thing is, the same sun that softens butter hardens clay. Some you give this message to and their hearts are softened. They receive it. Others, like Cain, harden their hearts and refuse it. Have you accepted? Have you agreed with God's righteous condemnation of your sin and cried out to God for help, for deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you still lost in your sin? God is righteous. 
and God will judge sin. But you know, God can take a sinner and by the sacrifice of his son make him a saint. God can bring good out of evil. God is not glorified in evil. Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? Or are you still under the condemnation of your sins?